Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Here we go, here we go. Here we go. Hello, podcast world. This is Chris coming at you with another solo episode today, and I'm excited about it. Today, I'm excited about it. Uh, Not that I'm not usually, but this one was a little bit of a surprise. So I promised you guys uh, after the last one that I wanted to do an episode on the Gospel of Thomas. Why? Why, you might ask. Well, because the Gospel of Thomas is interesting. It's really interesting. If, If you have any interest in Christianity, either maybe as your ancestral religion or as your culture or whatever it might be, if you have any interest in the history of it, what people don't talk about is how thoroughly well the Catholic Church did in creating an Orthodox religion out of Christianity and getting rid of all the smaller groups that believed other things. One of those groups existed from the very beginning of Christianity, and they call them Gnostics, but they are a big group. I mean, it's maybe you, it would be hard to even call them a group because there's they're a bunch of little groups, and they're not necessarily associated or related to one another. It's just when Christianity was new and there weren't any freaking rules, um, you know, th- there were faiths that were developing in cities all far apart from each other, all over the Middle East, all over Greece, uh, and, and beyond. So they just they just sort of developed it in whatever way they developed it. So we have, in the early days, you know, in the first couple hundred years uh, after Jesus died, we've got, we've got Christianity, but we have all sorts of different flavors of Christianity, and nobody ever talks about it. Um, the reason I think this is such an important topic and the Gospel of Thomas is such an important gospel to read is that it's believed by a lot of by a lot of archaeologists and academics that the Gospel of Thomas, which is a Gnostic gospel, might actually be the oldest gospel, um, older even than the gospels that appear in the Bible. So probably most people listening to this um, has never read the Gospel of Thomas. Most of you probably haven't heard of it. Um, and, you know, I don't blame you because people don't talk about it. It seems like, like, like I said, it seems like the Catholic Church did a really good job in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance and in the modern era um, proposing an Orthodox religion and getting rid of all of the, all the varying opinions. Um, and again, there's a whole bunch of Jewish uh, Gnostic groups, right? Some of them were Jewish, even pre-Christian, which is weird, because the Gnostics are almost exclusively talked about as uh, 
early Christians, but there were these Jewish groups that fall into that category. There were some non-Christian, non-Jewish groups that fall into that category. And then mostly they were the early Christian groups that lived uh, in the first century, um, you know, uh, in, in the Middle East and Greece and Rome and all those places. Uh, so let me just give you a little bit of background um, on Gnosticism. So they emphasize something called gnosis, and this is where we get the word Gnosticism uh, from. That gnosis is a Greek word, and it means secret spiritual knowledge. So these Gnostics believe that they have some secret spiritual knowledge that nobody else has. Um, that's interesting. Because if it's true, it's super interesting. Um, the thing is, what this gnosis is, what the secret knowledge is, is not, it's not the same between these different Gnostic groups. It's, it's different. And you might wonder, how could these people believe that they had this secret knowledge? Maybe it was like something that Jesus told you know, told one apostle, or Jesus told their group, let's say, or one of the apostles told their group, and did, didn't tell anybody else. You know, that kind of thing. And, you know, it, it's hard to imagine. It's, it, you could say it would be easy to write off that kind of thing. But if you think about it a little bit longer, what you remember is that is that Jesus spoke in codes and riddles. Okay? <laughs> That's in the Bible. I mean, we, we you see that. Um, codes and riddles. So Jesus calls them parables. Um Look up the definition of that word. Codes and riddles. This is what we're talking about. Um, so, so again, you guys know. I mean, Jesus will talk about, in the Bible, in the, in the biblical Gospels, he'll talk about, you know, the mustard seed and the story about the mustard seed. Or he'll talk about, um, you know, uh, uh, what, what is it, throwing, throwing the wheat into the briars or something. So there's all these different stories that appear in every single one of the uh, uh the Gospels in the Bible, or most of them, and um, they are stories, or they are fable-type type of things, like something you might read from Aesop's fables in, in ancient Greece, and you're like, what? what is he saying here? Well, some of them are pretty, are pretty transparent. You know, they're symbolic, uh, these parables. They're symbolic stories. They have some moral. They have some meaning to them, and if you're not, you know, if, if, you, if you think about it for more than a couple of minutes, you can kind of tease out what the moral is, what is Jesus trying to say? But he never says what he means. He he always talks around it and parables. So if that's the case, and we all know that's the case, um, is it so far-fetched that there might be secret knowledge out there that only certain select people were privy to, either from Jesus or one of his apostles? Um, well, maybe. You know, maybe it doesn't seem quite as far-fetched anymore. So let's talk about the Gnosis itself. Let's talk about the secret knowledge. Some of these Gnostic groups um, have different ideas about the divinity of Jesus. You know, in the in the Orthodox Catholic take, you know, Jesus and God are are you know the same. The Gnostics didn't all believe that, and in fact, some of them believed that Jesus was not uh, divine at all. Some of them believed that that was actually very important. Um, and, and you can you can you can imagine this. It's like if if Jesus is God and He's on the cross suffering, um, you can imagine that a, an all powerful supernatural creature that that's actually God and and uh, you know in the flesh, like what you know what God you know I guess there's no there's no way of saying that God wouldn't 
that God would suffer on the cross. He's God, you know, he doesn't have to, but a man like you and I has to. And so that suffering is painful. And we know that we have all been in pain before. We know how that is. You can imagine Jesus's suffering and it was tremendous. It was terrible pain. And then we all believe, you know, in the Orthodox perspective that that suffering and death was necessary to pay for the sins of humanity. If Jesus was God and was being tortured, but he's God, so, you know, he's not suffering. He's not, you know, it's not the same if Jesus is actually God. So some of these Gnostic groups were like, nah, Jesus was a man, just like you and I. Um, you know, he, he had to pay the price. God, God couldn't die, you know, it, it, so it was a man. So there's, you know, some reasonable some reasonable back and forth from these Gnostic groups that are questioning whether Jesus was, was God. And, you know, that's something that most Christians struggle with from, from, you know, one point or another, you know, thinking about something like the, the Trinity and trying to understand that as a kid or something. I mean, you, you know what I mean? It's confusing. Um, and you could easily write it off as nonsense. And many people do. Um, all right. What else? Some of them, some of the Gnostic groups believed that the great prophet or the supreme prophet was somebody other than Jesus. Um, yeah, but we know that the that the Muslims today believe that uh, Muhammad was that prophet, but before Muhammad, in the the Gnostic days, some people believed it was John the Baptist. Some people believed it was Mani or Zoroaster. There's other prophets, important historical figures, religious figures that that stood in that role for the Gnostics, the role of Jesus. So there's that. Maybe maybe that's the the secret knowledge. There here's another interesting one that shows up quite a lot, uh, and that is that that is that the Bible has fooled us um, as to the nature of God, and the Gnostics believe that the Creator, the God that created the heavens and the earth in the Bible, um, is not the supreme God. That 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 God is sort of an underling. Um, the word that they use in Greek is a demiurg. Uh, maybe I'm mispronouncing that demiurge or demiurg. Um, so there's there's actually at a minimum two gods, and these Gnostic groups were certainly spiritual and had no problem believing that the that the cosmos was just filled with spirits and forces of the supernatural variety. Um, but but they you know again they believed some groups that the gnosis was that God of the Bible was actually something like the devil or something like a lesser God that's pretending to be God. And if you're worshiping that God, you're a fool. If you're worshiping that God, your worship is, is falling on deaf ears. Um, that's not the way to, to salvation. That's not the way to glorify God. That's not the way to understand yourself. It's false. It's false. And only this, only these Gnostic groups that had the secret knowledge that there was a, a God above the, the Creator, those are the people that know the secret. Those are the people that can now worship the actual God, um, that kind of thing. And, and another common thread in the Gnostics is a rejection of material things and a rejection of the body. So this is a, it's called dualism usually. It's like people that think of the mind and the body is different and the mind being spiritual and the body being material and that we, we should reduce as much as we can of our attachment to the body um, and to material possessions and that will free us up to be more spiritual. You see that sort of thing in like monastic groups all over the world. You see that sort of thing in Buddhism, um, you know, in, in some of the Eastern religions as well. So it's interesting. Uh, that pops up in the Gnostic groups quite a lot where they want to become like a pure spirit and uh, reject their body and possessions and attachments very much like Buddhists would today.
All right, so I want to tell you about a couple of groups that fall into this category um, because they're super interesting. And I don't know if, you, if you've even heard of this stuff. Um, I remember when I first learned about it, I was completely surprised. I had no idea. I had no idea that Christianity was so interesting. You know, I have always been interested in religion since I was a kid and studied it and loved it and never had any interest in studying my own religion that I was born into because it was commonplace because it was, I, I knew it all, right? It was like, I was familiar with it. It wasn't exotic. It wasn't interesting. Then I found out there's so much I didn't know and it's all super interesting. All the stuff I'm going to talk about today is stuff that I found at some point and was completely baffled by. All right. So these groups, they include the Essenes. So if you guys know that name, if it rings a bell, uh, the reason is that those were the um, it was basically a monastic group um, in, in, in that wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls. So these were these were Jews that lived, you know, away from uh, Jerusalem, out in the desert, um, near the, de- the Dead Sea in the mountains. They lived like monks, and we found these caves full of these scrolls, the Dead Sea Scrolls. If you've heard of them, you know what I mean. They are some of the oldest Jewish, um, you know, and early Christian for that matter, um, materials that we've ever found. So the Dead Sea Scrolls was hugely important and uh, in Qumran and Israel and those uh, folks, the Essenes, they, they would fall into this Gnostic category. And if you read any of the Dead Sea Scrolls, you will see what I mean. It's really cool and interesting. Uh, the Essenes talk about um, the sons of light and the teacher of righteousness and all of these interesting like phrases that sound like Jesus or sound like, um, um, you know, some kind of a savior prophet, but they weren't Christian as far as we know. They, they just existed around the same time as, as the early Christian movement. And, and so there's some overlap there, but it's really interesting. Uh, but they reject material possessions. They live out in, out in the wilderness, um, you know, like monks. Then there was a group called the Manichaeans. You ever heard of Manichaeans? This is that prophet Mani I was telling you about. Um, it dates to about the 3rd century AD, so a little bit after Jesus' time. But it, it was a religion that developed from Persia, from Zoroastrianism. And we talked about Zoroaster before. He was another prophet um, where a tremendous amount of Hebrew and Jewish uh, religious practices and beliefs came from. So, you know, I don't want to like beat a dead horse here, but the Zoroastrians were the first people to believe that there was a God of good and a God of evil. So not unlike the way we think about God and the devil. Um, They were the first group to talk about an end of days in Armageddon. They were the first group to do that. Um, They um, were the first religion to talk about hell as a place of eternal torment and torture. That was something that didn't exist in in Judaism before their connection with these Zoroastrian people in Persia. So I tell you all that because, first of all, the Zoroastrian stuff is super interesting, and to know how much of the Jewish tradition comes from that religion is baffling, but there it is. In any case, after Zoroaster, there was a prophet who showed up in Iran named Mani, and Mani was saying all kinds of interesting stuff. He was saying, hey, we recognize all of these prophets from all of these different religions, um, and they were heavily focused on that dualism I was telling you about, the spirit and the body, and trying to, trying to diminish the body and, and focus on the spirit and become more spiritual, that kind of thing. 
they were they, they were called Manichaeans. Then there was another group. Um, in fact, they still exist today. Um, they're called Mandians. You ever heard of Mandians? Actually, I think I mentioned it once before, but Mandians are a uh, uh, religious group in the Middle East that developed right along with um, Christianity. And here's the thing. Their prophet is not Jesus, but John the Baptist. And they believe sort of the opposite to the way the Bible paints it, that John the Baptist came to kind of pave the way for Jesus to be born. And uh, the Mandians look at it the other way. Um, and there was a close relationship in the Bible between John the Baptist and Jesus um, in, in some like Renaissance art, let's say, that they're portrayed as being related. Um, so that's interesting. And those people still exist today. And, and that might that might seem strange, but you guys remember the story of the Samaritan, you know, the good Samaritan from the Bible? You guys know that phrase anyway, good Samaritan. Do you know what that means? So there's a group of Jews called Samaritans, and they still exist. Um, and they are Jews, just like any other Jew. But they have a couple of um, a couple of unique beliefs, and so the rest of the Jews in Israel kind of brushed them off as second-class citizens. And you know that's kind of what the Good Samaritan story in the Bible is telling you. But again, I, the, what I'm pointing out is there's another Jewish group that nobody ever talks about. Why? How are they different from the rest of the Jews? Well, they were the ones that got taken to Babylon, that were taken captive when the first temple got destroyed. And they were there in Babylon for a while before they get released and they get to come back to Israel. But now they've been there, for, they've been in Babylon so long, they're Babylonian Jews. You know, they speak uh, speak differently. They have different different beliefs. And, and, you know, they're basically the same as the rest of the Jews, but they're not quite. You know, maybe some of them married in with with some of the Babylonians, and they just weren't they weren't treated like regular Jews, and uh, you know nobody nobody talks about that. We just we just talk about Judaism and Christianity as if they're as if they're two religions complete and uh, you know uh, self contained. Bullshit. Same thing with Islam. People don't talk about Islam as all, at all. You know, you, you, you hear about Sunni, you hear about Shia. You know, we know that there are different groups within, uh, within Islam. Um, but it's very, very rarely talked about. Um, has anybody ever heard of whirling dervishes? Yeah, try spelling that. Whirling dervishes. Look that up. Look that up when you can. What you're going to find is a type of Islam that you've never heard of. A very mystical type of Islam that you've never heard of, that the Sunni and the Shia don't ever talk about because they pretty much write them off as redheaded stepchildren. But look them up. Look them up. There's a lot more going on with these major world religions than we pretend. And there's a lot more going on in, within Judaism and, and within Christianity than we pretend. And that's where all the interesting shit is, guys. So let's talk about it. Okay, so there's two major sources of material that we have that are Gnostic. The Dead Sea Scrolls we talked about, uh, they date from 400 B.C. to 300 A.D., so from before the time of Jesus till you know, a couple hundred years after. And they were found in Israel uh, near, near the Dead Sea. Then we have a, another find um, called the Nag Hammadi Library that was found in Egypt, it's equally as old. It's got a bunch of early Christian uh, works in it, a bunch of things that, that um, we, we uh, didn't have any um, like any copies of, like brand new things that we never knew about. Lots of interesting stuff uh, from the Nag Hammadi Library, um, including a book called the Pistis Sophia. And this one is 
uh, if you didn't notice, Pistis Sophia is Greek. So this one is, this one's written in Greek, and it has a very, it has a very like ancient Greek type of a feel to it. And you'll see that. But I want to read you just the first line from this Pistis Sophia that came from the Nag Hammadi Library, so that you can see how strange these, some of the Gnostic stuff was, and you'll understand to some degree. Why the Catholic Church said, no, this cannot be included. we got to get rid of this. It's too confusing. It's going to lead people astray. You know, whatever. You might, you might have, your, have your reasons. And I, I think the most important ones, though, are, are related to power. But in any case, let me read this to you. This is a Gnostic holy book called the Pistis Sophia that was found at the Nag Hammadi Library. And it begins like this. Now, when I'm reading this, think about other b- biblical passages and just try to compare because this is what I'm trying to get at. It came to pass when Jesus had risen from the dead that he passed 11 years discoursing with his disciples and instructing them only up to the regions of the first commandment and up to the regions of the first mystery. That within the veil, within the first commandment, which is the four and twentieth mystery, without and below, those four and twenty which are in the second space of the first mystery, which is before all mysteries, the Father in the form of a dove, what exactly exactly my point i mean there's some intriguing stuff in there like jesus comes he after he is raised from the dead he comes back to his apostles and he's teaching them he's teach he's instructing them i don't know what it is presumably gnosis secret knowledge that he's that he's teaching them and he says up to the regions of the first mystery ooh the first mystery intriguing i don't know what it means but it's intriguing um, that's the kind of shit you're getting in the Gnostic uh, holy books. So you can understand maybe why why they're not included in the Bible. Again, maybe it's because it's confusing and you can't, you, you know, it, maybe it's because it's subject to interpretation, and it certainly is, and the Catholic, the Catholic Church or the powers that be cannot control your interpretation, right? So that, might, that may have something to do with it. There's also a book... Um, it's uh, from the Manichaean religion called the Book of Giants. Um, if you ever have a chance to look at it, you should. It's it's really interesting because it it's it's related to another book that has a holy book that has connections to Christianity and Judaism that go back a long, long time. But it's not included in the Bible. It's called the Book of Enoch, and it's really fascinating. And I'll, one day I'll probably talk about that. But these Manichaeans have a book called the Book of Giants that's basically the same book as the Book of Enoch. And the Book of Enoch's been floating around the Jewish and Christian world since, I mean, a very, very long time. Long enough to be considered holy in the uh, Ethiopian church. And that's, in fact, where we found the Book of Enoch. And it was almost completely lost. And we found it in Ethiopia. Um, Okay, interesting. Um, Beyond that, there's a bunch of Gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas that we're going to talk about. There's a bunch of apocryphal books, by the way. That, That means holy books that maybe were considered holy once or in some place, but weren't included in the Bible or were thrown out for one reason or another. Um, Some of them are called apocrypha. Some of them are called pseudopigrapha, some interesting words I learned in college. But, um, uh, but there's a bunch, you know, if anybody listening is Catholic, you already know that your Bible contains books that the Protestant Bible does not. Um, The, uh, what is it? The book of Tobit, uh, the book of, um, 
Maccabees, first and second Maccabees are, are also there. Uh, there's a bunch. So books in the Catholic Bible that aren't in the Protestant Bible, but there's a bunch of others. Uh, there's a whole bunch that are that are old, like like Old Testament old. Um, and then there are a bunch that are that are more recent that are gospels and some that aren't. Like you guys know about the book of um, book of Revelation. Did you know that there's many of those? They're called a. Um, a apocalyptical like visions there's the apocalypse of peter uh that was almost included in the bible instead of the book of revelation stuff like that there's a lot of stuff out there that you've never heard of but if we're just talking about the accounts of jesus's life and we're not talking about any of the other stuff uh and you guys know what the gospels are in the bible matthew mark luke john that's it well there's the gospel of truth there's the gospel of philip the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of the Egyptians, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, the Gospel, the Infancy Gospels. There's many Infancy Gospels. There's the Gospel of Nicodemus, the Gospel of Peter. There is more Gnostic Gospels than there are Gospels in the Bible. And some of them are, aren't included for good reasons, and I would even agree. Like, hey, this Gospel was written, you know, 200 years, 300 years, 400 years after Jesus lived. I'm not so sure we can rely on that, or whatever. There might be some good reasons for that. But when we start reading the Gospel of Thomas, I think you're going to, you're going to have to try to think about that differently because, because God, the Gospel of Thomas is revolutionary in terms of Christianity. And we'll get there. Um, as far as the Gospel of Thomas goes, it's been proposed that it might have been written as early as 40 to 60 AD. So Jesus was supposed to have died sometime, you know, uh, sometime around, just after the uh at the turn of the first century. So this, the Gospel of Thomas could potentially have been written, you know, just a, a couple score years after Jesus was, was actually, uh, uh, you know, died. Other people say that it was written as late as 140 AD. So there's a big gap there, a gap of a hundred years. Um, so the reason I bring that up is because there's some people that say, no, the Gospel of Thomas was a later tradition you know, it was it, it came out around 140 A.D. Other people are saying, no, Gospel of Thomas was the first one. There's no earlier gospel. So I'll give you a contrast. Mark is considered to be the earliest gospel, written between 60 and 70 A.D. Matthew and Luke come later between 80 and 90, and John, the latest, uh, between 90 and 110. So if you believe that the Gospel of Thomas was written at 140, it's the oldest one. But if you believe it was written on the early side of the dating, it's earlier even than Mark. So that's interesting. Because if you're one of those people that wants to get to the bottom of Christianity, you want to know what Jesus believed. You want to know what the early Christians thought, what they were talking about, uh, what they were teaching. You have to go back to the source. You have to go to the earliest uh, accounts. And that could be the Gospel of Thomas. That's interesting, especially if you've never read the Gospel of Thomas. You might want to know, what did, what did the Gospel of Thomas have to say that, that Mark and Matthew and Luke didn't? Now, Mark and Matthew and Luke, by the way, are considered synoptic Gospels. So you may, you may hear that word thrown around. The reason they call them synoptic Gospels is because Matthew, Mark, and Luke have a lot of the same stories in them, in the same sequence, and with the same wording, so there are lots of passages that are literally identical or very, very similar in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So they call them synoptic gospels, and they say that those, those 
stories and quotes from Jesus and stuff that are that are common between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that they probably came from an earlier tradition because they're just borrowed. You can tell they're copied word for word. So they must have come from some older source. Um, and we're going to get there in a minute, but there is, there's debate about whether there was a gospel before uh, Mark, this earlier one that, that I'm referring to. And um, some people say maybe it was an oral tradition that was carried on from, you know, from person to person in the early days before the, the New Testament was written down. And maybe that's the case, but it doesn't, it's harder to explain why these stories and passages are literally identical word for word. So if you were memorizing them and telling the stories by word of mouth, you'd expect that you see some differences. That, to me, makes me think that maybe there was some written gospel earlier than, than Matthew, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, so let me, before I'm just going to uh, take a little tangent here, and I'll circle back to that. All right, I want to talk about John for a second, because John is not Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's not one of the synoptic gospels. It's also, in my opinion, the most close to the Gospel of Thomas. So it's the oldest one, the most close to the Gospel of Thomas, which may be the earliest one. And it's very mystical. The Gospel of John is very mystical. I love the Gospel of John. I need to go back and read that shit again, and I, I'm going to. So uh, mark my words, I'll, I'll probably do an episode on John. Here's the thing about John, though. John talks about, th- he makes claims about Jesus and Christ, about him being a savior, about him being God, about him, you know, uh, all, of, all of these things that, that, um, that come from, that are attached to the Jesus story that don't come from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You find them in John. And a lot of people question that because John is so different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and it was written so much later. So why is it that a book like John gets included in the Bible, but a book like Thomas gets excluded? Why is that? So that's interesting. Um, we'll see if we can answer that question uh, today. Um, I want to give you an a, example of how, of how John is mystical. <laughs> I want to show this to you. So here's uh, John 1. It goes like this. Well, before I read this, the, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke Gospels are all like very... Um, straightforward, telling the story of Jesus's life. So, so from the nativity in some of the gospels, or from his ministry starting in some other gospels, all the way through his death and resurrection, that's the story that gets told in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, it's very like a bibliography, like a like a bibliography, or a, uh, uh, that's not the right word. You know what I mean? Um, John is different. John is like poetic and and mystical, and reads more like something from the East. Um, Let me just read it to you. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. I mean, Jesus that is some powerful shit, you guys. That is not, uh, you know, a story of Jesus being born and, uh, you know, his dad being a carpenter and, you know, he, he has, starts this ministry and he, you know, meets the fishermen and tells them to, to throw their nets away and give away all their possessions and follow him. That's not what we get from John. 
From John, we get in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. That's the kind of shit you get from John. That's what I mean. It's amazing. And here's another thing I want to bring up. When I'm reading this book of John, this, this sort of mystical, you know, gospel, um, and it starts off saying in the beginning, um, it immediately brings your attention to the first book of the Bible, Genesis 1. So we're reading John 1. If you go back to Genesis 1, it says, just like John 1, in the beginning, right? God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. Okay, you can see in John very intentional allusions to this, the story of the creation of, of, of the material world. I, I think linking the Gospels to the creation stories is tremendously powerful. And you can see that. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? And then he says, um, uh, he says, let there be light. And John says, and the life was the light of men, and the light shineth in the darkness, Right? And John says, God divided the light from the darkness. So you can see how careful John was to mirror the story of creation. And it's a connection. It's important. It's a connection between the way John describes Jesus and, and the way God is described in the beginning. So there's a connection John is making between Jesus and God. And that's a connection that Mark, the earliest gospel, never makes. So Matthew and Luke and, and John for sure have references to, to Jesus as God. The earliest gospel, Mark, does not. And John, John again, I realize this is one of the later gospels, but he's, he's, he's the one that takes a stand and says that Jesus and God are one. Um, we're going to have to compare to the gospel of Thomas to see what that's all about, but I'm excited to do that. All right, I'm going to circle back for a second. I want to talk about something called Q. No, not that Q, you guys. Uh, I'm talking about uh, QL. Uh, it's just called Q. I'm probably mispronouncing the German, but that's a German word that means source. And that's the word in, um, you know, in academia that they use when they're talking about the original gospel that Matthew, Mark, and Luke came from. Remember, they all have this similar stories, word-for-word word quotes. So where did all that stuff come from? If it was borrowed by Matthew, Mark, and Luke in different parts of the, you know, different parts of the, of the world independently, they must have been relying on another document. So what is that document? We call that Q. So that's the source document for the Gospels. Um, okay, so what's interesting, well, let me... Let me read it this way. Um, it's a possibility that Q and the Gospel of Thomas are the same. Let me say that again. What Q, what Q was, seemingly, was a list of sayings and stories that Jesus taught that were carried on from word of mouth in the early, in the early days where people said, Jesus said this, Jesus taught this, and those things were carried along in an oral form. And one day they were written down and borrowed from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. When we discovered the Gospel of Thomas, what we found 
was a list of 114 sayings of Jesus, just like Q is supposed to be. So it's possible that this is Q that we're going to read. It's also possible that that the Gospel of Thomas came from Q, the same way that Matthew, Mark, and Luke did. But we just have no other evidence, so it could be that we're about to read Q together. Dun, dun, dun! All right, so the Gospel of Thomas. Uh, we have two versions. We have a Coptic version that was found in Egypt, and we have a Greek version that was found basically only in fragments. We didn't have the whole text. And the version I'm reading from today, you can find for free on sacredtext.com. Translation, translations by Thomas Lambden and uh, B.P. Greenfell. Um, it's free. You can read it. Um, it has a little bit of commentary in the beginning by a guy named Greg, uh, Craig Shank, and I like it, so I'm just going to read it to you. Good introduction. It says, The Gospel of Thomas is a collection of traditional sayings of Jesus. It is attributed to Didymus Judas Thomas, the doubting Thomas of the canonical Gospels, and according to many earlier traditions, the twin brother of Jesus. Did you know that? Did you know that some of the early Christians believed uh, that, that, uh, that, Jude, that Judas Thomas was Jesus' twin brother? And in fact, Didymus means twin in Greek. So there was some tradition that made it out like like this gospel was written by the brother of Jesus. So take that with a grain of salt. That's also something, by the way, that the Catholics would object to. They, they object to the idea that Jesus had siblings. So, you know, who's, who's Jesus' brother if he had no siblings, right? Uh, okay, he, he continues. He says, we have two versions of the Gospel of Thomas. The first was discovered in the late 1800s and consists of fragments of a Greek version, which has been dated to about 200 A.D., the second is a complete version in Coptic. It comes from the Nag Hammadi Library, like, like, like we were reading from the Pistis Sophia earlier, coming, coming from Nag Hammadi in Egypt. He goes on that there's been much speculation on the relationship of Thomas to the canonical Gospels. Many sayings in Thomas have parallels with the New Testament sayings, especially those found in the Synoptic Gospels. This leads many to believe that Thomas was also based on the so-called Q document, along with Matthew, Luke, and Mark. It says, indeed, some have speculated that Thomas may in fact be Q. Unlike the Synoptic Gospels and like Q, the Gospel of Thomas has no narrative connecting the various sayings. In form, it is simply a list of 114 sayings in no particular order. And it says, comparison with the New Testament parallels show that Thomas contains either more primitive versions of the sayings or developments of more primitive versions. Either way, Thomas seems to preserve earlier traditions about Jesus than the New Testament. So let me read that again. Even if Thomas wasn't the earliest gospel, and we can't exactly tell, but even if it was, this person saying, either way, Thomas seems to preserve earlier traditions about Jesus than those preserved in the New Testament. All right, he also says, um, he says that the Gospel of Thomas is clearly Gnostic in nature. As the preamble indicates, these are secret sayings, and they are intended to be esoteric in nature. The sayings are not intended to be interpreted literally, as their New Testament parallels often are, but to be interpreted symbolically. Then he, then he ends this way, and I think it's super important. He says, keep in mind that the true understanding of this text was meant to come from personal contact with the divine. Um, 
inspiration from within. So this is important, and I want to highlight for a second. When we're looking at these Gnostic groups, what sets them apart from the other Christians is that they claim to have a personal contact with God. So that whatever the secret knowledge is, whatever the gnosis is that, that, that separates them from the, other, from the other Christians, it comes from a personal connection with God. Now you hear people say that kind of thing, Christians say that kind of thing, you know, having a personal relationship with God and that sort of thing. But when we start reading the Gospel of Thomas, you're going to see what they mean by this seems to be something more like a mystic experience. You know, maybe these people were doing uh, some form of psychedelic, you know, maybe ergot or something like that. We talked about that a lot, you know, these psychedelic drugs being used uh, pretty much everywhere in the ancient world and uh, significantly in certain parts of the world where, where religions developed from them and Christianity may be no exception. And these Gnostics, I think had contact with the divine, just like they say. And their writings were inspired by their experience of God. Um, and I think that's what sets them apart, and you'll see that. And you have to ask, you have to ask whether that was a part of the experience of the early Christian movement, and it's been erased. And, what, and if that's the case, what are we missing from the practice of Christianity today? Like maybe the heart of it has been removed, you know? All right, so I want to give you a handful of quotes in the beginning just to show you what I mean when I say that the Gospel of Thomas, these list of sayings of Jesus, have parallels with the New Testament because I want you to see how close this, you know, potentially this Q document is to the ones that we see in the Bible. And then once we've done that, start reading the ones that are nothing like what you see in the Bible. And then we can start talking about what the heck that means. So let's do this first. These are parallels to the Gospel of Thomas that you find in the Bible. So there's a, there's a um, passage in the Gospel of Thomas that says, His disciples questioned him and said to him, Do you want us to fast? How shall we pray? Shall we give alms? What diet shall we observe? So these are the, the, the disciples asking Jesus how they should pray, what they should do. And Jesus says, Do not tell lies and do not do what you hate. For all things are plain in the sight of heaven. For nothing hidden will not become manifest, and nothing covered will remain without being uncovered. So that comes from the Gospel of Thomas. If that sounds pretty reasonable, you know, it, it probably should, because it parallels a passage from the Bible in Luke that we're all very familiar with. The disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. Just like Thomas said, his disciples questioned him and said, do you want us to fast? How shall we pray? So exactly like this. You, you might remember this because the Lord's prayer is coming. Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. And he said unto them, when ye pray, say, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So that, that passage that teaches us the Lord's prayer, you see a version of it in the Gospel of Thomas. You don't get the Lord's prayer but you do get Jesus' advice. He says, do not tell lies. Do not do what you hate. That kind of thing. Um, we had a couple similar ones. So Jesus said in the Gospel of Thomas, he who seeks will find, and he who knocks will be let in. And if that sounds familiar, it probably comes from Matthew 7, which says, ask and it shall be given you. Seek and ye shall find. 
Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For every one that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Yeah, that's clearly a parallel to the Gospel of Thomas. Nothing unusual there. And then we end up getting some, uh, some of the parables. So in the Gospel of Thomas, you get, Jesus said, Now the sower went out, took a handful of seeds, and scattered them. Some fell on the road. The birds came and gathered them up. Others fell on the rock, did not take root in the soil, and did not produce ears. And others fell on thorns. They choked the seeds, and worms ate them. And others fell on the, on the good soil and produced good fruit. It bore 60 per measure and 120 per measure. Does that, does that sound familiar to you? Well, it should. The Gospel of Matthew says, And he spake many things unto them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went forth to sow, and when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them up. Some fell upon stony places where they had not much earth, and forthwith they sprung up because they had no deepness of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked them. But others fell into good ground and brought forth fruit, some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. So you can see in the parable, the Gospel of Thomas has a, a couple of different words, a little phrase a little differently, but it's the same story. It's the same parable. We have more from the Gospel of Thomas. It says, The disciples said to Jesus, Tell us what the kingdom of heaven is like. And he said to them, It is like a mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds. But when it falls on tilled soil, it produces a great plant and becomes a shelter for birds of the sky. Does that sound familiar? Matthew, Matthew thinks it sounds familiar. Matthew 13 says, Another parable he uh, put he forth unto them, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds. But when it's grown, it is the greatest among herbs and becometh a tree, so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches. It's the same parable. We've got another just like it. Jesus said, You see the mote in your brother's eye, but you do not see the beam in your own. When you cast the beam out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to cast the mote from your brothers. And Matthew 7 says, And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thy own? Or, that, or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite, first cast out thy beam from thy own eye, and then thou shalt see clearly to cast the mote out of thy brother's eye. It's the same exact parable. I'll give you a couple others just to solidify this. Thomas says, For what goes into your mouth will not defile you, but that which issues from your mouth, it is that which will defile you. So that's interesting. Um, seems, to, seems to imply something about the dietary restrictions that the Jewish people have. So if you eat certain things, if you're a Jew, you, you know, you're su supposed to be a sin. You, know, you can't eat pork, you know, uh, animals with, with hoven gloves or, or scallops or mussels or whatever. You can't eat those things if you're Jewish. So Jesus in the Gospel of Thomas says, what goes into your mouth will not defile you, but that which issues from your mouth, like the words that you say, it is that which will defile you. I like it, but do we see it in the Bible? Yes, we do. Matthew 15 says, Not that which goeth into the mouth defileth a man, but that which cometh out of the mouth, this defileth a man. Okay, 
Thomas and Matthew are freaking linking up here. Um, here's another. Jesus said, I have cast fire upon the world, and see, I am guarding it until it blazes. So I read that one, and I thought, there's no way that the Bible has a passage like that. That seems pretty interesting. Jesus says, I have cast fire upon the world, and see, I am guarding it until it blazes. Do we have that in the Bible? Yes, we do. Luke chapter 12, I am come to send fire on the earth, and what will, um, and what will I if it be already kindled? That's what it says. Did you know that? That's interesting. What does that mean exactly? Um, okay. Um, the Gospel of Thomas says, Jesus said, Men think, perhaps, that it is peace which I have come to cast upon the world. They do not know that it is dissension which I have come to cast upon the earth. Fire, sword, and war. For there will be five in a house. Three will be against two, and two against three. The father against the son, and the son against the father. And they will stand solita- solitary. So this kind of goes with that, I have cast a fire upon the world, and see, I am guarding it until it blazes. Kind of seems like something bad is happening here. And, and then Jesus turns around and says, Men think that it is peace which I have come to cast, but they do. They, we said they do. They they don't know. It is dissension which I have come to cast upon the earth, fire, sword, and war. Do you think that's in the Bible? Do we have a parallel in the Bible for that? Because that, to me, was a surprise to read. Seems surprising, right? Matthew ten says this: Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes shall be they of his own household. What? Yeah, that's right there in the actual Bible, the Gospel of Matthew. You know, I mean, I don't know where your mind goes about what this might mean, but, but I understand that Christianity was a revolutionary philosophy. It was a revolutionary way of thinking and way of believing. We see that because it took over the Roman Empire and it took over the world, and uh, it's the largest religion on, on the world today, even though it's over 2,000 years old. You can see that there's power in it. Um, but you can also see that things like all of the, all of the death and fighting and war that happened during, uh, during the early days of Christianity when, uh, when the Catholic Church was being formalized, when, when the Eastern and the Western Churches split, during the Crusades, all these different times, then then when Christianity absolutely cast a fire upon the world, and absolutely Jesus' message came to bring fire, sword, and war. You can see that historically. Um, I just wonder if that's what Jesus meant. I just, you know, I just wonder. That's an interesting little, little tidbit. But again, uh, Gospel Thomas is going to say some some stuff that's going to surprise you. This was one that did surprise me, but turned out to be biblical nonetheless. Um, I have a handful more here. Gospel of Thomas says, Jesus said, No prophet is accepted in his own village. No physician heals those who know him. And that and that actually makes sense. I mean, it's like, no prophet is, is accepted in his own village. It's like, imagine if you received a message from God legitimately, whatever that means. And you were told you had to share it with your, you know, with everyone. So you go out to the people who know you the, the best, the people that you're most comfortable talking to, your friends and your family. The thing is, they know you. They know you're an idiot. 
They know you're sinful. They know your failures. They know your shortcomings. You know, they've seen you lie. They've seen you cheat. They know you. They're not going to believe you, that you're a prophet, that you you have a message from God, because you're a flawed human being like everybody else. This is what he seems to, to mean when he says no prophet is accepted in his own village. And Mark says the same thing, chapter 6. But Jesus said unto them, a prophet is not without honor, but in his own country and among his own kin and in his own house. You might remember this little ditty. Um, the Gospel of Thomas puts it this way. A city being built on a high mountain and fortified cannot fall, nor can it be hidden. Matthew again comes in chapter 5. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. See that? And the Gospel of Thomas says, Preach from your housetops that which you will hear in your ear. For no one lights a lamp and puts it under a bushel, nor does he put it in a hidden place, but rather he sets it on a lampstand so that everyone who enters and leaves will see its light. Is anybody else singing uh, Sunday school songs right now? Hide it under a bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine. So the Gospel of Thomas knows that. That comes, of course, uh, from the Bible where that, that reads like this. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. So you see it directly parallels the Bible. Uh, I've got a few more like this too. The Gospel of Thomas says, Whoever has something in his hand will receive more. And whoever has nothing will be deprived of even the little he has. All right, that's a sad statement. But you guys know where I'm, getting, where I'm going. Uh, Matthew says this exactly. For unto everyone that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath. So we've all heard that before. That's something Jordan Peterson uh, describes as the Pareto distribution, the Pareto principle. You can look that up, but it's something that says in every creative endeavor um, that almost all of the creative output comes from a, a very small number of people or a number of sources. And that happens. It's like when you play Monopoly. At the end, everybody there's only one person holding all the money. That that actually does happen. It's actually a phenomenon that happens with creative endeavor, and that's what uh, the Matthew principle is being described here. Is sometimes is called, um, for he who has much, much will be given. For he who has nothing, you know, everything will be taken. Something like that. We see that in the Gospel of Thomas. We see it in Matthew. Um, and then we have a final couple here. Jesus said in the Gospel of Thomas. Whoever blasphemes against the Father will be forgiven, and whoever blasphemes against the Son will be forgiven. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either on earth or in heaven. So that's interesting. We could talk about that for a day, probably, so I'm not going to, but I want to read you the parallel in Matthew chapter 12 that goes, And, whoever, and whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. So you can see that parallel. And then we have one, uh, the last one, it reads like this. In the Gospel of Thomas, Jesus said, Show me the stone which the builders have rejected. That one is the cornerstone. Of course, you probably heard that before. Matthew 21 says, Jesus said, Did ye ever read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected. The same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So what do you think? I mean, you can see the argument about Q here. 
you've got all of these passages in Thomas that mirror passages in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And some of them are very, very much word for word, or at least the spirit of them is basically the same. And if you were trying to understand where did this come from, you would do whatever, what, we, what we suggested earlier. You would say either, this is Q, or that this came from Q, just like Matthew, Mark, and Luke did. And that's why we're seeing so many similarities. But it's also interesting to see that these are all simply quotes of things that Jesus said. There's no story behind them. So it may have been that these were the kind of stories that were told rather than the life of Jesus and his birth and that sort of thing, or even his resurrection, that what people in the early days might have been passing along from mouth to mouth were stories about what Jesus said and what he taught. And so the earliest stuff that gets written down is just a list of those things, like we're seeing with the Gospel of Thomas. All right. I want to read to you how the Gospel of Thomas opens up, and then I want to get into the stuff that I find the most interesting. Remember, this is a Gnostic gospel, and it reads like this. These are the secret sayings which the living Jesus spoke and which Didymus Judas Thomas wrote down. Jesus said, the Pharisees and the scribes have taken the keys of knowledge and hidden them. They themselves have not entered, nor have they allowed to enter those who wish. So the gospel of Thomas is saying here something really interesting saying that the Pharisees and the scribes, these are the priests of the Jewish religion in Israel. These are, the, these are the most important people in the Jewish faith. He says, they have taken the keys of knowledge and hidden them. So whatever it is that the, that the priests of God are supposed to be teaching to mankind, they aren't. And so this is what the, Gnos- the Gnosis, the secret knowledge that the Gospel of Thomas is, is going to lay out. This is what it's trying to restore to restore what the priests should be sharing with us from God and aren't. And what's interesting is that even this passage uh, has a mirror in Luke. And it reads like this, Woe unto you, lawyers, for ye have taken away the key of knowledge. Ye entered not in yourselves, and them that were entering in ye hindered. And as he said these things unto them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to urge him vehemently and to provoke him to speak of many things, laying wait for him and seeking to catch something out of his mouth that they might accuse him. So again, this is leading up to where the Pharisees are trying to uh, uh, have Jesus arrested so he can, be, he can be killed and taken care of. That's what's happening here. And just like the Gospel of Thomas says, the Pharisees and the scribes have taken away the keys of knowledge, Luke says... Woe unto you lawyers, for ye have taken away the key of knowledge. Same words. Same words. And again, what the Gnostics are trying to restore are the keys to that knowledge so that everybody can enjoy the secrets that the priests are hiding from you. And then you might ask, why are the priests hiding them? And maybe that's the same reason why the Catholic Church kept books like the Gospel of Thomas away from from all of us for hundreds and hundreds of years to consolidate power, to be the authority, you know, uh, to maintain their privileged position in society, a priest, you know, a church, an institution. That's a pretty good reason to hide it from us. All right. So I put together some of these passages. Remember, they weren't, they weren't in any particular order. So I put together some passages that talk about something that Jesus talks about in the Bible that I find really interesting. Um, 
It's about conquering death. And you guys may remember from some of the episodes we did about early Christianity and the uh, this sort of psychedelic um, the psychedelic thread that kind of follows through a lot of these ancient religions going all the way back to ancient Mesopotamia. Um, and you do see evidence that there were mystic and psychedelic experiences that served as the basis for the development of these religions. And part of that mystic experience is the feeling of conquering death, you could say. It's definitely the feeling like death doesn't exist. It's like the idea of dying no longer accords with reality. You can't you can't reconcile it in with your beliefs because when you have a mystic experience and you become God, even for a moment, you realize that what you are is eternal. And so the idea of dying starts to seem ridiculous, or at least you put it in a different, you put it in a different context. It's not like dying is the end of you because it's not. You're conscious. So consciousness continues with or without you. And that's definitely what comes from the mystic experience is an undermining of the fear of death. And you can see that even today where they're doing um, psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy, let's say, and they're doing it with terminal cancer patients. And cancer patients are coming out of these trips saying that they no longer fear death. This is what I mean. So let me, re- let me read to you some of these quotes um, that talk about this from the Gospel of Thomas. Um, also, it, it, the reason this is important is because it, it's tied to the secrets, the keys of knowledge that the Pharisees are hiding from us. It's like, what, what do we unlock if we have that key? So maybe it's this. It's conquering death. So what did, what did the Gospel of Thomas have to say? Jesus said, Let him who seeks continue seeking until he finds. When he finds, he will become troubled. When he becomes troubled, he will be astonished, and he will rule over the all. All right, that's a doozy. Um, I have to point out that the all is capitalized as though it's a proper name. So what what, what is meant by he will rule over the all is that he will rule over everything, right? He He will rule over everything. You know, that that that's like another way of saying God, right? Everything. So let me, let me, I mean, we saw a quote similar to this, you know, he who seeks finds, you know, knock and the door shall be opened. We've seen some of this stuff before, but what this says is let him who seeks continue seeking until he finds. Okay. Now, if you've ever been in a situation where you're trying to find, you know, you're, you're trying to understand yourself. You're trying to understand something difficult. You're doing, uh, you know, philosophy for the first time. You find yourself in a situation where you're seeking and you're seeking and you're seeking, but you're not quite sure what you're seeking after. You'll know when you're satisfied, but you're just not satisfied. So you keep seeking and seeking and seeking. That resonates with me. I definitely understand that feeling. And that's what he's describing. Let him who seeks continue seeking until he finds. When he finds. Now, it's not clear what it is he's going to find. But it says when he finds, he will become troubled. When he becomes troubled, he will be astonished and he will rule over the all. So I want to explain this to you. This is interesting because it's like um, what they were saying earlier, what the, what the commentator was saying earlier about how these uh, passages really only make sense to somebody who's had a personal experience of God because that's what that's where these passages come from. And having had a mystic experience, I feel like this makes sense to me. So I'm going to give you my interpretation 
take that with a grain of salt, but this is what it sounds like. When you have the mystic experience, you have the becoming one with the universe experience. The Gospel of Thomas says the all, you know, but the one, the all, that kind of thing. When you have that experience, you, f- you do feel as though there's nothing separate from you, that you feel as though subject and object becomes one thing, and you become indistinguishable from the experience that you're having, and that seems to be all there is. It's a very overwhelming experience. It's a very beautiful experience. But when you have that experience, you will become troubled. That, I think, is to put it lightly. But you will become troubled. Um, Some people resist that experience. When they do, they oftentimes will report having a bad trip, a, quote, bad trip. Um, You know, but it's, it's the idea where you or you're struggling against it, you're rejecting the experience, and you really can't uh, under the circumstances. So if you, if you do that, you will have a bad time. But nonetheless, even if you have a good experience and you become, you have that, that at-one-ment, you have that moment where you become one with the universe, you find yourself God, for lack of a better word. And when you find yourself God, that will trouble you. Because you don't know what that means. You don't know what that means about you, about your responsibilities, about what it means when this, when this experience is over and you're back in your body and you're, you're immortal again. You will be troubled. Then you will be astonished. When you find yourself God, that will astonish you, let me tell you. And then you will rule over the all. So I'm, what I'm doing here is I'm just saying that a mystic experience is a realization of becoming one with God. And that is something that will trouble you. It will astonish you. And when you, when you realize that, when you have that truth, you know, when you harness that truth and you believe that you are God, well, what are you going to do then? You're going to rule over the all. So what I'm getting at here is that this single line of passage from the Gospel of Thomas seems to me to be describing a mystic experience the type of experience that most religious people uh, achieve through through psychedelic drugs, but oftentimes through meditation and sensory and sleep deprivation. And these guys were monks, so it could have been any or all of those things. But there's no doubt in my mind that what Jesus is describing is a mystic experience. It also reminds me of the passage passage from the Bible when Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist and he comes out of the water and the dove comes down and the voice of God comes out from heaven and says, Jesus is his son. That even that, to me, sounds like a description of a mystic experience, a description just like what we just, what we just read. All right, so the next one, <clears throat> Jesus said, Whoever finds the interpretation of these sayings will not experience death. So what, he, what he's saying is that what, what's been written down, what's been written down in the Gospel of Thomas is, uh, is the intuition from the mystic experience and if you can understand what it is they're saying that you'll know the secret they'll have the key that the, that the priests have been hiding from you you'll know the secret and when you and when you know the secret you will not experience death okay so somebody who's become god you can imagine will have no fear of dying and that i think is what's happening here and if you think that that there aren't parallels there in the Bible? Let me read you a couple from John. John chapter 8, Verily, verily, I say unto you, if a man keep my saying, he shall never see death. 
And how about trusty John 3.16, whoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. See what I mean? Even in the Bible, now notice these are coming from John. These are coming from the mystical, the mystical gospel. But, but John is saying the same thing, that the message of Jesus, the meaning of, of Christianity, is the key to conquering death and to ruling over the all. Put differently, it's the way of becoming God. Isn't that what Jesus was supposed to be? Interesting. All right, let's keep going. Here's another uh, quote from uh, Gospel of Thomas. Jesus says, If you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. So that's that's amazing. It reminds me of uh, Jordan Peterson, surprise, surprise. Uh, But what he's saying is that there's something within you that can be brought forth. And if you can bring it forth, it will save you. Now, Jordan Peterson will talk about this in a way like, like, you know, he talks about God as though God is potential, but he talks about human beings as though um, we're like that too. In God's image, we're potential and we can become pretty much anything we want um, with sufficient sacrifice and sufficient work. So whatever it is that we need is already there within us. We can bring it forth by trying, but we have to try. And there's parallels here to, um, uh, to genetics. You know, it's like you, you get exposed to, you know, a tropical disease that, you're, you know, that your line hasn't been exposed to since you guys left Africa 100,000 years ago, and suddenly you got junk DNA that doesn't do anything, it's turning on for the first time in 30 generations, and it's helping you fight this disease. It's like there's potential there, even in your DNA, that can be triggered and turned on. Same thing is the case if you're working out or riding a bike or whatever it is, you're, you're putting forth the work you need to bring, bring the strength of muscles that you need to do whatever work you want to do. So you have this potential in you, whether it be psychological, spiritual, physical, and all of those ways you can see whatever it is you need, you have, you just need to bring it forth. And Jesus says, if you bring it forth, it will save you. And if you do not bring it forth, it will destroy you. And I have to ask the question, because we're talking about this mystic experience and conquering death and ruling over the all, what is it that Jesus is saying is within you that can be brought forth? Is it God? Is it God? That's what I'm asking. All right, next one. Jesus said, the heavens and the earth will be rolled up in your presence, and one who lives from the living one will not see death. Does not Jesus say, whoever finds himself is superior to the world? So this is an interesting quote, Um, but I want to point out a couple things. It says, and one who lives from the living one, and the living one is capitalized, like this is is the, the name for God. Here I want to point out that the word one is being used. So all and one so far have been used to describe God in the Gospel of Thomas. You don't see the word God or Yahweh or Jehovah or anything like that, but you do see the all and the living one. And I just want to point out that both all and one are phrases that come inevitably 
from the mystic experience, to become one with the universe, to feel everything merging together, to realize that the borders don't exist and everything kind of blends together. That's the feeling of being one with the universe. And that's what, that is what is being used to describe God. And I think that's significant. He also says, whoever finds himself is superior to the world. And I think what that means is that what you are deep down is greater even than the world. You just have to discover who you are. And that's the question, kind of an immortal question. Uh, in fact, it was, it was scrolled above the temple of Apollo at Delphi, know thyself, remember? We've been asking ourselves that question for thousands of years. Um, and so if you know who you are, if you know what you are, again, if you've had the mystic experience, you know that what you are is God. Like Jesus knew that he was God. That if you know that, then, then, then obviously you're superior to the world. Whoever finds himself, whoever recognizes that what they are is God, will be superior to the world. And you can see how something like that wouldn't make sense. Whoever finds himself is superior to the world. It makes no sense unless you've had a mystic experience. If you're, if you're on the inside and you read that, you're like, yep, got it, got it. So that's what I'm trying to do, explaining, explaining to you what I think it means. Uh, but also the fact that you, you don't see anything like this in the, in the Bible. All those quotes we read that were identical to the scriptures, to the, to the gospels, and the stuff we're reading now, you see nowhere in the scriptures. All right, next one. Uh, the disciples said to Jesus, tell us how our end will be. And Jesus said, have you discovered then the beginning that you look for the end? For where the beginning is, there will the end be. Blessed is he who will take his place in the beginning. He will know the end and will not experience death. All right, so this is really interesting. So the disciples are saying, how is everything going to end? And he says, you know, kind of snarkily, have you discovered the beginning that you're asking where the end is? But then he says that where the beginning is, that's where the end is. And we, we've, we remember that from the Bible as well. I think from John where Jesus is described as the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, right? If Jesus is God and that God is the beginning and the end, is this what we're talking about here? He said, he said, for where the beginning is, there will the end be. And then he says, blessed is he who will take his place in the beginning. So what does that mean? If the beginning and end are God and you take your place in the beginning, then what you're doing is identifying with God, just like you're doing in the mystic experience. If you take your place in the beginning, that's you become God, right? Then what happens? He will know the end and will not experience death. Interesting. And then the last one in this segment is, says this, For there are five trees for you in paradise, which remain undisturbed, summer and winter, and whose leaves do not fall. Whoever becomes acquainted with them will not experience death. So this may ring a bell. I mean, I don't know what the five trees are in paradise that he's referring to, but in the book of Genesis does describe two, and we only ever hear about the one, and we've talked about this before. The tree of knowledge of good and evil we hear about because that's what Adam and Eve eat from. That's what gets them kicked out of the garden. We don't, we don't hear as much about the tree of life. The tree of life is, is what was being protected when, when God kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden, right? To keep the way of the tree of life. That's what the Bible says. So this passage is saying there are five trees in the midst of the garden. 
whose leaves do not fall. So if I was describing the tree of life, I probably would describe it that way, as a tree whose leaves do not fall. And then it says, whoever becomes acquainted with him will not experience death. And of course, if you have a tree called the tree of life, and you eat from it, what do you expect to happen? You're probably going to live forever. And if you think that's a stretch, so much, so, so much ancient mythology talks about that. Whether we're talking about, um, you know, Soma from the ancient Indian or Iranian religion, whether we're talking about the apples of, of Hesperides from the Greek uh, religion, there's always a fruit or a plant that is the key to immortality. Same thing in the Epic of Gilgamesh. So again, doesn't surprise me whatsoever. Um, again, I'm not sure how I can explain away that there being five trees instead of two, but that's also interesting. Um, and it seems to be what Jesus is saying here is that what's being symbolized by the tree of life in the book of Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, that this is the thing that will, that will be offered. This is the thing being hidden by the priests that will be offered by the gnosis, by the secret knowledge that will allow you to become God so that you can overcome death, become immortal, something like that. By the way, it's not at all supposed that you're going to become immortal as an individual. It's not like I get to be, you know, supernatural Chris forever in heaven. No, it's that you get to be God. You get to be God. That's what it means. You don't get to be yourself. I just want to point that out in case that's not clear. You don't get to be yourself forever. I can eat a fruit and never die and get to be me. No. It's something more like the Indians uh, believe in, uh, you know, the Hindu religion that, that your soul goes back and joins with the soul of God and you become one with God in that way. I think it's something more like that that's being described here. All right, so the next segment I'm going to call the kingdom of heaven. There's a lot that gets talked about in the Bible, uh, even in the Dead Sea Scrolls, about the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean? So some people will think about the kingdom of heaven as the heavens, you know, as the, the starry heavens. Some people will think about the kingdom of heaven as the supernatural place where God exists or where the supernatural creatures like angels exist. Maybe that's heaven. Um, some people say the kingdom of heaven is like, is like the world that will come after this one is destroyed. If you, if you believe, you know, what the book of uh, Revelation says or, or some of those other, uh, apocalyptic writings that at some point there's going to be a war, um, you know, heavenly or earthly or both, and that the world gets destroyed and reborn. And sometimes that's called the new Jerusalem. And, uh, that, that is also one way of thinking about this idea of the kingdom of heaven. Um, I'm not sure it's super clear in the Bible which it is. And so let's get into this because the Gospel of Thomas has a lot to say on the kingdom of heaven. Gospel of Thomas says, Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. And that shouldn't sound strange to you because Matthew 5 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So either way, you've got a parallel here. And this, this is a confusing passage. It's not one I, I'm eager to interpret because whether this means poor, like, uh, you know, uh, not someone not as connected to material things or to the body, that, that would be in line with Gnostic beliefs, or poor in spirit, which is harder for me to interpret, and that's the one that comes from the Bible. And it says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what is that? Now, here's where the Gospel of Thomas says something interesting. 
It says, if those who lead you say, see, the kingdom is in the sky, then the birds of the sky will precede you. If they say to you, it is in the sea, then the fish will precede you. Rather, the kingdom is inside of you, and it is outside of you. When you come to know yourself, then you will become known, and you will realize that it is you who are the sons of the living Father. But if you will not know yourself, you dwell in poverty, and it is you who are that poverty. All right, so this one, this one might be one of the most important uh, passages from, from the Gospel of Thomas, and you'll you can see you can see why this one may have been left out of the Bible. And if you've seen the movie Stigmata, by the way, some of these Gospel of Thomas quotes come up. One of them we're going to read in a minute. And you may recognize, um, but let me just put this in my words. Jesus is saying if 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 somebody's trying is trying to lead you to the kingdom of heaven, whatever that is, and they tell you that it's in the sky. They tell you that it's in, you know, it's in heaven, let's say. He says, then the birds of the sky will precede you. It's like, it can't be the, can't be the case. If they say it's in the sea, then the fish will precede you. Rather, the kingdom is inside of you and outside of you. Okay, so if you're the, if you're the church and you want to maintain your power and position and ability to extract money and resources from your congregation. And that's what happens when when religions get formalized and well-established. Then you probably want to tell those people to come to you to get to the kingdom that's being promised. You're not going to tell them that it's already inside you and all around you and you have access to it whenever you want. Uh, They're not going to tell you that because then what, what need do you have for them? Right? And then this, this last bit is interesting, and I love it. He says, when you come to know yourself, then you will become known, and you will realize that it is you who are the sons of the living Father. So Jesus is often called the Son of God, right? The Son of the living Father. So when this says, when you come to know yourself, which is exactly what the Temple of Delphi asks you to do, know thyself. So if you know what it is you actually are, you have a mystic experience and you've become God and you know that that is what you are. It says, then you will become known and you will realize that it is you who are the sons of the living father. So this whole thing about becoming known is interesting because it reminds me again of consciousness and consciousness is a concept that I associate with God almost exactly. And the idea here is, it says, when you come to know yourself, that's when you know deep down that you're God well, what does that mean? That means God knows that it is you. So, so, so you know you're God. God knows now that you're that that it's you as well. So you become known to God. Something like that. That's interesting. And then you and then then you'll realize that it's you who are the sons of the living Father. And this is something that the Catholic Church is not eager to say, even though Jesus may have said it in the earliest days. That what Jesus is, the Son of God, is something that you can be, and maybe you already are. You just have to realize it. Right? Now, the, the, the church needs to maintain ownership, let's say, in some, in some way, over the source of salvation. That's Jesus. But if you get to be Jesus, and Jesus said so, what is the church going to do? 
that's that's a good reason to keep this from us. So there you have it. And what's funny here is it ends if you do not know yourself, you dwell in poverty, and that and you, it is you who are that poverty. So you know the Catholic priests are going to keep that key of gnosis to themselves. You know the you know, the Jewish. Uh, uh, Pharisees as well keep the secrets to themselves, and uh, in doing so, they create some spiritual poverty among the masses, and they're doing that for their own self-interest. That's that's what the Gospel of Thomas is telling you. All right, next one says, Jesus saw infants being suckled. He said to his disciples, these infants being suckled are like those who enter the kingdom. They said to him, shall we then as children enter the kingdom? And Jesus said to them, when you make the two one, and when you make the inside like the outside, and the outside like the inside, and the above like the below, and when you make the male and the female one and the same, so that the male not be male, nor the female female, and when you fashion eyes in the place of an eye, and a hand in the place of a hand, and a foot in the place of a foot, and a likeness in the place of a likeness, then will you enter the kingdom." Holy shit, let's go back here. So you do see some stuff in the beginning that should sound familiar to you because Jesus does say uh, a lot about the state of mind of a child and, you know, that children can easily enter the kingdom of heaven. And what does that mean, especially if the kingdom is inside you and it's all around you? What does that mean that a child can tap into that more than an adult? It sort of means something like that level of sort of unconsciousness that a child exists in. That, that lack of self-consciousness, maybe, uh, that hasn't yet developed, and all of that potential that a child represents, that that is something like what God is. And a child is just more, more like God in that way. And Matthew 3 is where you find that, where Jesus says, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so the stuff about, the, you know, the child to me makes sense because you, if you have been around children and have children, you, you, know, you know what I mean. Um, you know, they're, they're like representations of potential. They're beautiful, beautiful creatures, children. Um, but this last part is more difficult to understand. It says, Jesus said to them, when you make two one and when you make the inside like the outside, and the above like below, the male like the female, you know, what does that mean? He's like, if you can do that, then you'll enter the kingdom of heaven. And this is harder to explain, but it goes back to it goes back to the ancient Mesopotamian religion, which had a huge influence on Judaism and Christianity, but it goes back a long, long ways. And where they describe God originally being this male and female God, Tiamat and, um, and Apsu, and they're together, and they represent order and chaos, but they're together. They haven't been separated. They're one thing. They're God conceived as one thing. But because they're male and female together, the mixture that's happening inside, um, it's usually called the Ouroboros. What's inside that, that cosmic egg is a bunch of creation, right? The male and the female are together, so what's happening? Something like sex is happening, and creative things are happening within it. But until Tiamat and Apsu get separated, until one become two, there isn't there isn't exactly being. There isn't reality. There, creation hasn't happened yet. And this, I think, is what it's referring to when it says, when you make the two one. 
That, so when you make Tiamat and Apsu one, or when you make when you make yourself and God one, when, when you unify your, your consciousness with God, um, that's the that's the mystic experience in a nutshell. That's what happens when you become one with the universe. And he says, when you make the inside like the outside, and the male like the female, and this is describing a union of opposites, just like Tiamat and Apsu, chaos and order together. Uh, what you want is a combination. You want the opposites united. And that in doing so, what you find is something like God. And so that's what you get here. Jesus said, if you can make the male like the female, and if you can make the inside like the outside, the above like the below, then you will enter the kingdom. Now, we've heard this before, uh, the above like the below. It comes from Hermes Trismegistus. It comes from this ancient Greek um, you know, philosophy that says in describing the relationship between God and the cosmos, as above, so below. What, what it's like in heaven, it's like on earth. What God is like is what we are like. As above, so below. And that's what Jesus is saying. When you can make the above like the below, or when you recognize that the above is like the below, God and the material cosmos are the same. You and God are the same. So when you realize that, then you will enter the kingdom. Interesting. Can't help but think that's describing a mystic experience, you guys. The evidence is stacking up in that direction. All right, there's another bit here where Jesus says, if you do not fast as regards the world, you will not find the kingdom. So this is interesting too. You know, to fast is to abstain from something, usually eating or drinking. But Jesus says you have to fast as regards the world. You have to take yourself out of the world. You have to um, abstain from the world. Uh, before you can enter the kingdom. And so you can imagine Jesus did this when he went out into the wilderness. Um, monks do this when they go out, you know, away from other people and, and try to, what, try to, try to what, what are they doing? They're trying to find answers. They're trying to find themselves. They're trying to find something they can't find without shaking up, you know, shaking things up, going out into chaos and doing something different. That's what they're doing. And so that's what Jesus said you have to do. You have to get perspective, so you fast as regards the world. You fast from the world. You pull yourself away from the world to find yourself. Because remember, when you find yourself, know thyself. When you find out what it is you actually are deep down, you will be astonished, and then you will conquer death, right? A couple more in this, in this uh, two more here. Uh, Jesus' uh, disciples said to him, when will the new world come? And he said to them, what you look forward to has already come, but you do not recognize it. And this just goes along with that, the other stuff about the kingdom. It's like, if the kingdom is inside you and all around you, if it's already come and it's not some promised thing that the, that the Savior is going to bring, um, that takes away a little bit of that carrot right, that the Catholic Church is dangling uh, over the Christian faithful. Right? I don't have this... Um, I don't have this prize or threat of a new world to come because it's already here. And what I'm pointing out is that what the problem is is that you don't recognize it. So what you what what needs to happen here is not for the kingdom for the kingdom of heaven to come. What what needs to happen is for you to recognize that you're already in it. And this I think has a deeper explanation. It it's tied to what we Kyle and I often refer to as our subjective experience. 
It's like what the world is to us is is coming from our consciousness that in a way that's unique to us. It's subjective. It's not the same for me and for Kyle and for everybody else. It's different for all of us. I don't know. I I don't know where I was going exactly with that. So let me move on to the last quote. This is one of the, the one of the last ones in the in the um, Gospel of Thomas, and it reads like this. Um, same, same question, when will the kingdom come? And Jesus says, it will not come by waiting. It will not be a matter of saying here it is or there it is. Rather, the kingdom of the Father is spread out upon the earth, and men do not see it. Okay, so now I remembered where my thread was. So when he says that the kingdom is spread out upon the earth, and earlier he said the kingdom is within you and, and outside of you as well, but men do not see it, but you do not, you do not recognize it. So imagine this, if you go with me, that, that God is consciousness, and everything is consciousness. God is all, like the mystic experience tells you, and what that all is, is consciousness. Now, I've said it many times, but if you go with me on that, and we reread this line, the kingdom of the Father, that's consciousness. God is consciousness, and so are we, and so is material reality. If God is one, that that's the case. So it says, the kingdom of the Father is spread out upon the earth, and you can imagine the earth and all of the things in it, the creatures, the matter, the life, all of the stuff that's, that's there are, if you're, if you're a panpsychist, they're all made of consciousness. Or even if you don't go that far, at least the living creatures there, the plants and the animals and the microorganisms, they're all alive. They're all conscious like God. So when it says the kingdom of God is spread out all over the earth and you can see life spread out all over the earth, all you have to do to realize that you're looking at the place where God exists, the kingdom of heaven, is to recognize that subjective experience, the thing that you experience uh, as reality, that's consciousness. That's the same thing that God is. So of course, when you look out around you, you see the kingdom of God all around you. That's your subjective experience, an experience of consciousness. And if you look within yourself, what is it that you are? You're a conscious being. It's within you too. It's everywhere. So the kingdom of, of God that you're waiting for, what are you waiting for? You are that kingdom and it's all around you. The kingdom is the place where God exists. That's, that's something that we call being. I keep calling being. It's the material world. It's space and time and everything in it. That's the kingdom of God. Right? If God, if God made, you know, became the universe so that he could become manifest and exist within himself, which is what I believe in a mythological you know, manner of speaking, then this is true. The kingdom of the Father is spread out upon the earth and men do not see it. That's, that's what's been locked away by the Pharisees. The truth that you are God and so is the cosmos. That's something you have to experience in a mystic intuition and then when you do, you have become God and no longer fear death. This all adds up to me. And if you're not sure about this kingdom of heaven being uh, spread out upon the earth or being within you, if you don't believe that bit is biblical, I'll refer you to Luke 17 that says, And when he was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. Neither shall they say, Lo here or lo there, for behold... The kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God is within you. And if it's there, there's no need to go to a priest for it or to the church for it, right? Okay.
Next, I want to talk about this next segment is called light. Um, and it's the second to last. The reason I bring this up is because I've been, I noticed there's a lot of quotes that have to do with light. And I saw that in the Dead Sea Scrolls when I read them. And I'm seeing that in the Bible and I'm seeing that in the Gospel of Thomas. And it just happens to be something I've been thinking about lately. Because there's something interesting about light that I have to really dig into. I want to understand better. Because light is a weird thing. First of all, it's sort of everywhere. Um, a light is electromagnetic radiation, is what it is. So it's more than just what we see that we call light. It's all sorts of things. You know, it's what's it's what's pouring out of the sun and heating the earth. It's uh, you know, it's 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 energy, really. It's what makes everything tick. And and beyond that, light is so strange in that it has a speed, right? The speed of light. And nothing can travel faster than the speed of light. So it's something about light that is like the upper limit of what's possible. It's like light somehow governs what's possible because you can't go faster than light. Um, there's, it says something about the nature of, of the universe that I don't understand. So light is very interesting to me. I want, and it's one of those things that doesn't exist as a particle or as a wave, but as both simultaneously. So it's this magical, it's this magical thing that is associated or tied closely with how the universe works and what, you know, how fast it's allowed, the universe allows things to travel. We can look to light to find that out. So what is light exactly? I really, I'm really curious about that. And it just happens that the Gospel of Thomas has some things to say about it. Um, So let me get started. Jesus said, if they say to you, where did you come from? Say to them, we came from the light, the place where the light came into being on its own accord and established itself and became manifest through their image. If they say to you, is it you? Say, we are its children. We are the elect of the living father. If they ask you, what is the sign of your father in you? Say to them, it is movement and repose. All right, so that, that, that takes some explaining here. But um, So you remember, you know, the Pharisees are asking Jesus a bunch of questions in the Bible, trying to get him to slip up and say something that they, that they can use as the basis of putting him in jail or having him killed. And it kind of sounds like in the Gospel of Thomas that this is what this is what Jesus is talking about. He's like, hey, if somebody asks you, where did you come from? This is how you should answer so that you can avoid, you know, it's, it's, it's like speaking in parables again. It's a way of, of speaking in a roundabout way. So only the people that know what you mean are going to understand you and nobody else can use it against you. So if, if anybody asks, where did you come from? You say to them, we came from the light, the place where the light came into being on its own accord. Okay, so something that comes into being on its own accord, well, that's sort of impossible. It can only happen, it can only happen with God, right? And things don't just spontaneously happen. They have to have a cause. Um, so, so this is what he's saying. He's referring to, um, well, he's referring to Genesis 1 that says, in the beginning, you know, God said, let there be light, right? And now uh, the Gospel of Thomas says, we came from the light, the place where the light came into being on its own accord, right? So the, the thing that, that creates itself, that's God. And in the Bible, that's, that's what creates light. Let there be light. So what he's really saying here when he says, we came from the light, is he's saying, we came from the place where, where the light came from, right? 
God was the one who said, let there be light. So when he says, we came from the place where light came from, what he's saying is, we came from God. Um, and then and then Jesus says, and if they ask you, is it you? Are you God? Um, then you're supposed to say, we are its children. We are the elect of the living Father. So that's what Jesus did, guys. That's exactly what Jesus did. When Jesus was asked by the Pharisees um, who he was, they were trying to get him to say, I am God. So they could say, you're a blasphemer. We're going to chop off your head. But that's not what he said. He said, I'm the son of God. I'm the son of the living Father. He said stuff like that. And it's very difficult to pin him down when he's speaking that way. And so he's tr- he seems to be teaching his apostles the same way. And the last thing it says, when they ask you, what is the sign of your father in you? Tell them it's movement and repose, which is another way of saying life and death. It's the thing in me that makes me alive and when leaves me, leaves me dead. That's, that's the evidence of God in me, which is not a, you know, it's not an unusual argument. It's not, a, it's not a, unique argument. We've, we've heard that before, but it's interesting. And there's a passage in John that talks about light in a weird way like this as well. And it goes like this in chapter eight, then spake Jesus unto them saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. The light of life. So there's also this implication here that Well, Jesus is the light of the world, and the light is life. Okay? So whatever Jesus is is calling himself the light of the world, let's call that consciousness, because we're going to equate that with God, Jesus with with God. Now, the consciousness is the thing that inhabits you, that makes you alive. It's the light of life. So now consciousness is being equated to light, and I think that's interesting. All right, here's one. Salome said to Jesus, Who are you, man, that you, as though from the one, have come up on my couch and have eaten from my table? And Jesus said to her, I am he who exists from the undivided. I was given some of the things of my father. Therefore I say, if he is undivided, he will be filled with light. But if he is divided, he will be filled with darkness. All right, so... So Lucy has some explaining to do here as well. So this is a, you know, just a quick back and forth between Jesus and Salome. And I want to point out that Salome says, you know, who are you that you come to my table and eat my food? But he, she says, who are you as though from the one? Capitalized. So here we have another, another reference to God as the one, as the oneness. That's something that comes from mystic intuition. It doesn't come from the Bible. You don't see it there, but you see it here. It's no, it's not, he's not saying God or Yahweh or anything. The one. And then Jesus said, I am he who exists from the undivided. Now you remember when I was talking earlier about that Mesopotamian story about the Ouroboros. Tiamat and Apsu, they're combined together in this primordial egg. And that's all there is. That's God, the egg. And it's made up of chaos and order. Before it gets separated... Before it gets divided, it's, you know, it's God, full stop. And Jesus says, I am he who exists from the undivided. I came from God, from the undivided, from the Ouroboros. And then he says, if he is undivided, he will be filled with light. But if he is divided, he will be filled with darkness. And this seems to be 
related to the notion that you should be Christ-like or be as Jesus was. You should be undivided, you know, try to be like God. Uh, that's the best. That's my best interpretation of that. But it's interesting that he's relating the undivided. So that's God in the beginning. He said, if you're like that, you will be filled with light. So you can imagine Apsu and Tiamat are in this primordial egg, this pre-cosmogonic egg that we call the Ouroboros. Chaos and order together, and they're doing something creative, right? The male and the female inside, Chaos and Tiamat, are, are giving birth to something. In the Mesopotamian story, it's all of these gods. But here, in the Gospel of Thomas, it seems to be light, right? It says, I say if he is undivided, he will be filled with light. So now we can imagine Apsu and Tiamat creating all these gods within themselves, and that that's symbolized as light. Um, those gods are also psychological forces. You know, they're primordial psychological forces. And so maybe it's consciousness that we're associating with light here in the same way we did earlier. It's beautiful, man. It's beautiful. Um, it also makes me, makes me think of um, a phrase that people use where we talk about... Um, like the glint or the or the light in somebody's eyes. So if you see somebody who's enthusiastic, you see somebody who's captivating, um, they'll have a glint in their eye. It's like they have a light reflecting from within their eyes, and they look bright and brilliant and and you know uh, inspired, right? And and you see that like somebody's filled with light. You know, I know it's poetic, but it just comes to my mind. All right, Jesus said, It is I who am the light, which is above them all. It is I who am the all. From me did the all come forth, and unto me did the all extend. Split a piece of wood, and I am there. Lift up the stone, and you will find me there. So that last little bit is the piece I was referring to that was used in Stigmata, in the movie Stigmata from the 90s. Split a piece of wood, and I am there. Lift up the stone, and you will find me. And the idea is that if God is everywhere... And the kingdom is everywhere. Then you can split a piece of wood and find it. You can lift up a stone and find God. And that that's one of those things that was seen as reprehensible by the by the early church, you know, trying to establish themselves. They don't want people to have access to God anywhere and everywhere and within themselves. They want them to go to the church for it, to go to the priest for it. Sa- same thing is true of the Pharisees in, in in the you know in the Jewish uh, Jewish religion. All right, so John chapter 8 says something like this. It says, um, Jesus spake uh, unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. We just, we just read that. So in, in uh, Thomas, Jesus says, it is I who am the light, which is above them. It is I who am the all. I mean, that's Jesus saying, I am God. But he's also using the word light to talk about that. So, so, so the light represents God or consciousness, seemingly. Uh, and there's no there's no qualms about it. I mean, there's no two ways about it. In the Gospel of Thomas, Jesus is saying, I am God. Uh, he's also using the word the all to talk about God. Again, just like what you would do in the mystic experience. There's also a uh, passage in John 14 that goes along with this. And it, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If he had known me, you would have known my father. Um, and from henceforth, you, ye know him and have seen him. So this is Jesus saying, look, if you know me and you've seen me, then you know God and you've seen God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
And in the Gospel of Thomas, they say, I am the light which is above them. It is I who am the all. It's, it's amazing. It's amazing. You don't, you don't hear that in the Bible exactly, apart from in John, and it's not exactly like this. This is a little different. All right, last one in this se- segment. Um, Jesus said, The images are manifest to man, but the light in them remains concealed in the image of the light of the Father. He will become manifest, but his image will remain concealed by his light. All right, this is really interesting. When it says the images are manifest to man, what that makes me think of is that it makes me think of my subjective experience. It's the representations that fill up my, sub- my subjective experience. So the, all of the different objects in the reality that I encounter, to me, they're, they're representations to some degree. They're subjective to some degree. It's like my mind is creating a, a shortcut to understand the world around me. And what I'm not seeing is the objective world. What I'm not seeing is what's really there, at least not you know, as it, as it exists all by itself, that I'm, I'm existing within a subjective experience just like everybody else. So I can see the subjective experience. All that's manifest. Those images are manifest, and we experience them. But it says, but the light in them remains concealed in the image of the light of the Father. So remember, the light in them is the God that's in them. It's the consciousness that's in them, or that's you know, that, that they're coming from, that these images are coming from, you know, the, the, the bit of God or consciousness that, 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 that they're reflecting and that that remains concealed. Another way of putting that is that human beings walk around in God. We are ourselves God. Everything we encounter and everyone we encounter is also God. And, and we experience all of that stuff as real and believe it to be real, but never understand that what's behind the experience is God. What's driving it all is God. The thing that's conscious behind my eyes and yours and all of the, the living things and perhaps the non-living things all, all around us are God. So it's this illusion that we're experiencing and the reality that we somehow are, that it's somehow concealed from us. And it seems to be, it seems to be on purpose because it says, it says the light in them remains concealed in the light, in the image of the light of the Father. It's like, why? Why are we existing in images and not and not, you know, in in light, you know, for lack of a better word? It almost sounds like it's intentional for some reason. Um, and then, of course, John uh, John one says, "And the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not." And this is also along the same lines. If if the truth that God is there in all things is concealed from us somehow, and it's not obvious to us somehow, and John says that the light shineth in the darkness and that the darkness comprehended it not. It's like it's concealed from the darkness. You see in, in, in that passage from John, it's interesting. And so I ask, what is the light? And I think John answers. He says, uh, John 1, 3, All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And that was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Okay, so now it's unequivocal. So now you know that what the light is, is life. The light of men is life. And what you see coming into every man, that lighteth every man, that's, that's God. That's consciousness. That's what the light is. Amazing. 
And you don't get that from the Bible. You don't get that. But it gets more mystical, guys. It gets more mystical. Uh, let me let me transition here to the hippiest part of, our, of today's segment. Um, let's start here. Jesus said, The foxes have their holes, and the birds have their nests. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head and rest. And we see that in, in the Bible. And Matthew 8 says, Jesus said unto them, Foxes have holes, the, bir- the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath nowhere to lay his head. So you see this exact, exact quote uh, in the Bible that you see in the Gospel of Thomas. But what does it mean? It's not clear what it means. And, and what I wanted to bring to your attention, because we talked about the uh, connections between Jewish and Christian religion and the older religions from the same area, the old ancient Mesopotamian religions. We're talking about Apsu and Tiamat and the primordial egg and all that. Um, from that same culture, um, their creation story, um, whether it be the creation of the world or whether it be the creation of man, it talks about uh, the gods needing needing to do all this work and not and it being too much for them, and so they create human beings to take that work on their shoulders. And so the way the, the story puts it is that the gods wanted to be at rest and they didn't have a place to be at rest because there was all this work to be to be done. It was endless. So they create human beings to pick up the work from them so that they can be at rest. And the story is a little bit hard to uh, understand, but what it seems to imply is that the place where the gods can finally be at rest is within the human beings that were created to do the work for them. So it's like the gods now exist within human beings. All right, so let me circle back. Having said that, circle back to this quote. Um, foxes have their holes and birds have their nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head and rest. And again, to me, it just makes me think of the idea that God as consciousness comes down into human beings, right? That's the light of life that's been described earlier that goes down into human beings and bring and brings them to life. And that, according to the Mesopotamian um, myth, is where the gods find rest. So while the foxes and the birds have their places to, to rest, g- the God has, has its place to rest in, in us, in, in man. So that, that comes to mind. And I don't know if that's exactly the interpretation, but I don't have any other. So that's my best, uh, my best attempt. All right, so let's get into it uh, now. Jesus said, The man old in days will not hesitate to ask a small child seven days old about the place of life, and he will live. For many who are first will become last, and they they will become one and the same. So this is another reference to the child. You know, the child will enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, So even a wise man, an old man, he said, will be able to get more truth from a child um, than all of his life experience. Uh, Next one says, Among those born of women, from Adam until John the Baptist, there is no one so superior to John the Baptist that his eyes should not be lowered before him. Yet I have said, whichever one of you comes to be a child will be acquainted with the kingdom and will be superior to John. So even John, you know, the, the, the greatest prophet before Jesus, the one that paved the way for him to come, um, that, e- that even him is going to pale in comparison to the spiritual knowledge of a child. And 
that comes right from the Bible as well. So Matthew 11 says, Among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So the Bible says this exactly. All right, Jesus said, Recognize what is in your sight, and that which is hidden from you will become plain to you. For there is nothing hidden which will not become manifest. And that this happens a lot. This nothing hidden which will not become manifest, nothing concealed that will not be revealed, that that language repeats over and over in lots of these passages, like so much so that it's hard, it's hard to, you know, to ignore. There is nothing hidden which will not become manifest, and that seems to be some sort of a deep religious promise, the way that uh, Christians might say, you know, Armageddon is a, is a religious promise, that we have, to, we have to look for this to happen one day. Jesus, um, in the Gnostic uh, religion and in the Gospel of Thomas, he's pointing that out uh, seemingly in a similar way. But what he's saying is nothing hidden, there's nothing hidden that won't be, be manifest. Um, okay. All right. Jesus said, This heaven will pass away, and the one above it will pass away. The dead are not alive, and the living will not die. In the days when you consumed what is dead, you made it what is alive. When you come to dwell in the light, what will you do? On the day when you were when you were one, you became two. But when you become two, what will you do? All right. So this one is uh, a little Doctor Doctor Susie, but I love it. Um, all right. So he says the heaven, this heaven will pass away. That's the that's you know the heaven, the stars above us. He said the one above it will pass away, which is like there's going to be a whole other era that will come and there'll be a whole other heaven, a whole other series of constellations that the, that consciousness will be looking looking to, not not the one you and I have today. Um, that's going to pass away too. So it's like, you know, a long, long time is going to go, uh, go by and, and things things will, will fade. And then he says the dead are not alive and the living will not die which is, again, maybe another connection to this idea of conquering death, where when you realize that you are God, um, there's really no such thing as living or dead exactly. And you, you know, would never put yourself in the category of dead. Um, death is, is some, really becomes hard to understand, and even, even life or creation becomes hard to understand because it implies a beginning. You know, God doesn't have an end, so it's not going to die, but... God didn't have a beginning either. So the dead are not alive and the living will not die. Uh, it says, when you come to dwell in the light, what will you do? Now remember, the light is the life of men. So when you come to dwell in the light means when you become self-conscious, maybe. And when you become enlightened, when you know the secret, when you know the gnosis, that, that the secret knowledge that Thomas is trying to impart. He says, when you know that, what will you do? And then he says, on the day when you, when you were one, you became two. But when you become two, what will you do? So this is hard to, hard to understand, but I want to try here. On the day when you were one, you became two. Okay, so you remember, God is the thing that's one. So on the day you were conceived, let's say, um, you were conscious. You were, you were consciousness, just like God. You were one. But you became two, right? You, you're still God, but now you became you as well. You became the, the baby in your mother's womb, let's say. You're still consciousness, just like you were when you were God. Um, you've become two. So this is a way of understanding uh, the multiplicity of the world and the oneness of God. It's very difficult to do, but you've heard me try a million times, and I'm doing it again. 
So on the day when you were one, you became two. Okay, so the day you were conceived, you, you, you started off as God and you became two. Your consciousness was, was you know, duplicated and, and placed in, this, in your mother's womb. And then it says, but when you become two, what will you do? I think what that means is when you become two means you're brought into the material world, right? You're, you become manifest. You're now alive and here and now in the world. What will you do? Right? Now that you're here, what will you do? Now that God is, is, has filled you up with light and consciousness and you're, and you're a self-conscious being um, with free will, what will you do? And I, I think that's a religious question. That's a deeply religious question. You know, you are God on earth, just like Jesus was. God made manifest. Now you're here. Now you can act. Now you can think. Now you can do. What will you do? You gonna sit at home, and watch TV all day, and eat cheese cheese doodles? You think that's you think that's the best, uh, the most honorable way to to kind of spend that gift? Um, I think it's saying something like that. All right, next one. Blessed is he who came into being before he came into being. If you become my disciples and listen to my words, these stones will minister to you. So I think that last bit is related to the, you know, split a piece of wood and you'll find me, lift up a stone and I'll be there. He's saying God is everywhere and the kingdom of God is everywhere. And you can learn the mystery of God by examining reality, yourself and the world around you. And that's what he means when he says, uh, if you become disciples of mine, the stones will minister to you. It's like the material cosmos has everything you need to know because it's all made of God. Examine it, you know, um, un- understand it, come to know it, and you will, ha- you will be enlightened. But this bit in the beginning is really the bit I like the most. He says, blessed is he who came into being before he came into being. What does that mean? What, what what does that mean? Well, it's tied to this idea of uh, on the day when you were one, you became two. It's tied to that. Because, because you were God, right? And God came into being in the beginning. I mean, maybe was always there. So you've got God, and then you've got uh, as consciousness, right? And then you've got you as consciousness, so you you came into being before you were ever here, right? You were God before you were ever here manifest on the earth. You were consciousness then and you're consciousness now. You, you came into being before you came into being. Now when Jesus said, blessed is he who came into being, what, what he means here is that you would be blessed to realize your identity with God. Because once you come to know that you've always been you came into being before you personally ever ever came into being, that that's another way of saying you're recognizing your identity with God. It's amazing. All right, Jesus said, when you see your likeness, you rejoice. But when you see your images which came into being before you and which neither die nor become manifest, how much will you have to bear? And there's an exclamation point on that sentence. So I want to, I want to start from the beginning. He says, when you see your likeness, you rejoice. This is just like, 
you know, my daughter, uh, every time she sees herself in the mirror, she, she just stops and she makes faces and she you know, does little dances and stuff. She, when you see yourself in the mirror, generally we like that. We like seeing our reflection. We like mirrors. We like reflecting pools. We like that. We like it, right? He's pointing that out. When you see your likeness, you rejoice. But when you see your images, which came into being before you, which neither die nor become manifest, how much will you have to bear? And the question is, when you look at yourself in the mirror, you like it. But if you looked in the mirror and saw what you actually are, how much would you like it? You know, um, how much would you have to bear? Maybe too much. And so the idea here is when he says, but when you see your images, which came into being before you, that goes back to the last quote. Um, uh, blessed is he who came into being before he came into being. So he, when he says, uh, when you see your images which came into being before you, what does he mean? He's describing them as, as that which neither, neither dies or becomes manifest. So we're talking about God. We're talking about the, the thing that I was before I came into being. That's consciousness. That's God. If I were to see the images, whatever it is that God is, the face of God, or if I was, if I was to see, you know, whatever that representation is, that it, it wouldn't be like looking in a mirror. It would be like looking into oblivion. It would be like looking at everything all at once, like looking at pure potential. That, that's that Terminator 2 liquid metal can become anything substance that I keep trying to describe as what's likely there behind our subjective experiences, what reality actually is. Um, and this quote is, if you saw that, how much would you have to bear? It's like, it's like a rhetorical question. You couldn't bear it. What you really are, if you could see it, you couldn't bear it. And, and, and Jordan Peterson says something that reminds me of this every time. He says, um, that we are a lot more than we imagine by a tremendous margin, something like that. I'm paraphrasing. And that's true. Um, you remember when we were talking earlier about potential and how you can, you know, exercise to change your body or you can, you know, expose yourself to some new condition and your genes will change uh, and adapt uh, and come basically turn back on and come back to life to help you adapt to that situation. Um, I lost my lost my thread again. All right. Apologies. All right. So here, let's just move on to the next one. If the flesh came into being because of spirit, it is a wonder. But if spirit came into being because of the body, it is a wonder of wonders. Indeed, I am amazed at how this great wealth has made its home in this poverty. So this one's pretty straightforward, actually. Um, if the flesh came into being because of spirit, you know, so if, if God created the material world, he said, that's a wonder. But if spirit came into being because of the body, Right, if the material world came first and spirit came after, he said that would be the wonder of wonders. But what he's pointing out here is he's amazed at how this great wealth has made its home in this poverty. Now this goes back to that that dualism I was telling you about, that mind-body dualism that these Gnostics um, kind of kind of uh, gravitated towards, where the body was bad and the spirit was good. And that, that's what he's saying. He's like, I'm amazed at how this great wealth. He's talking about the thing that makes you alive the light of life, consciousness, or God, how that thing can make its home in this poverty, which is the body, which is the material world, the finite, the things that, that fade and die, and, and you know, uh, the fact that God can be in that, 
you know? It's a wonder of wonders. All right, here's an interesting one. In the, in the gospel, in, in fact, what I want to do, I'll just read it to you. In the gospel of Thomas, it says this. Were there, no, I'm going to do, I'm going to do Matthew first. I'm second guessing myself. I'm going to do the biblical version. In Matthew 18, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. So Jesus is saying, if, if two or three Christians get together to worship or pray or be Christians, that I will be there in spirit, that I'll be with them. And that's sort of part of what the church uses to uh, uh, legitimize, you know, having a congregation. Um, in the Gospel of Thomas, it says something like it, but very, very not like it. Listen to this. Where there are three gods, there are gods. Where there are two or one, I am with him. So that's interesting. You can see they're very similar quotes, but they're not at all. I mean, it's, it's almost like either Matthew or Thomas has taken this and rearranged some things to make it mean something that it doesn't mean. I don't know which is which, but in the biblical version, it's like, you know, hey, Jesus will be there in spirit with anybody who gathers together that believes in him. It's like, okay, that, that's, you know, that makes me feel kind of good, I guess. But what Thomas is saying is where there are three gods, there are gods, where there are two or one, I am with them. And so it's kind of like if this is the same passage that we read in Matthew, um, when he's saying where there are three gathered, um, he's, not, he's not saying three people. He's actually calling them gods. Like, like somebody who follows Jesus is a god already. And then he says, where there are two or one, I am with him. So if there are three... They're gods. If there are two or one, I'm going to be with them to make them three so that they'll be gods. You know, it's, so it's something like that. It's something like the followers of Jesus are gods. It's something like that. And I'm not sure that it's limited to the followers of Jesus. It may be anybody who has the light of life in you, any conscious creature, something like that. And then, and then let's see, we have a few more. A few more and then we'll wrap up. All right. All right. His disciples said, when will you become revealed to us? And when shall we see you? And Jesus said, when you disrobe without being ashamed and take up your garments and place them under your feet like little children and tread on them, then you will see the son of the living one and you will not be afraid. All right. This is uh, this is short, but it's interesting. Um, so his disciples are saying, when will you reveal yourself to us? Which I'm not sure what that means. Maybe he's saying, when will you show us that you're actually God and not just this Jesus person? Something like that, maybe. And Jesus said, when you disrobe without being ashamed, take, take your clothes off and walk on them. Then you will see the son of, of the living one and you will not be afraid. So then you will see God and you won't be afraid. Um, this is what I want to point out. Just like John did when we talked about earlier, this passage is borrowing from Genesis heavily. And uh, let me read this and you'll see what I mean. Genesis 3 says, um, this is after Adam and Eve ate the knowledge of uh, good and evil. And the eyes of them both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And then a little, a little bit later in that passage, it says, the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Okay, so Adam and Eve become self-conscious. Then they realize that they're naked. 
they become afraid and they hide themselves. Now let's go back to the Gospel of Thomas where he says, they, they ask, when will, we, when, when will you reveal yourself to us? And he says, when you disrobe, right, when you become naked, he said, then you will see me and you will not be afraid. Just like Adam said, I was afraid because I was naked. So there's a connection here between the creation of human beings and this, and this uh, relationship between Jesus and his disciples. And I, I found that to be extremely interesting. I'm not sure what it means, but I love this connection, this intentional connection that we're seeing in John and in the Gospel of Thomas that are really kind of mystical, um, that connect the creation stories from the, from the early books of Genesis to the Gospels, to the life of Jesus. And this is another example. All right, Jesus said, Whoever believes that the all itself is deficient is himself completely deficient. So, I mean, I realize he's making a different point here, but he does say the all in talking about God, so I want to point that out. He also says that if that whoever believes that God is deficient is himself deficient. That's a way of saying, <laughs> if you are God and God is deficient, guess what? You are deficient. So that's a way of saying you are God. It's another way of saying that. Uh, whoever believes the all is, is deficient is himself deficient. I, I mean, that's what he's saying. Next, he who has recognized the world has found the body, but he who has found the body is superior to the world. So we had a little reference to this earlier about being superior to the world, but I think this is interesting. It's confusing. I mean, I don't know what you, what you think it means on the surface. He who has recognized the world has found the body. What does that mean? It means that the world is the body. Okay, what does that mean? The world is, is not just like the earth. It's like existence, right, in, the, in, these, in these ancient um, scriptures. So the world just kind of means everything. You might say the universe or the cosmos or something. So he who has recognized the world has found the body. Okay, so it's like, it's like the universe, the cosmos, is the body of God. Okay? Then it says, but he who has found the body, so he who has recognized that the cosmos is God, is superior to, to the world. It's superior to the body. Okay? So this is one of those paradoxical statements here where we're saying, once you realize that the cosmos is God, and you are God, that there's a way in which you are superior to the world because your your consciousness, your God, you're you're the thing that exists within God, something like that. All right. So then the next one says, uh, "Tell us who you are, so that we may, we may believe in you." And Jesus said, "You read the face of the sky and of the earth, but you have not recognized the one who is before you, and you do not know how to read this moment." I think is a very striking statement. I like that. So tell us who you are so we, we may believe in you. John has a similar uh, quote. Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? So you, you've got the same bit. And in Luke, you have the other bit. So here it says, you read the face of the sky and the earth, but you have not recognized the one which is before you. In Luke 12, it goes like this. When you see a cloud rise out of the west, straight away you say, there cometh a shower. And so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say, there will be heat, and it will come to pass. Ye hypocrites, ye can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it that ye do not discern this time? 
and this is this is interesting to me. You know, you, you see like the word discern and the word um, reveal and stuff like that, and recognize that comes up over and over and over again in the Gospel of Thomas, and it seems to be about coming to terms with your reality, whether it be that you are God or that the cosmos is God and trying to come to terms with that. It's about recognizing the reality and then coming to terms with it. That's where the salvation comes from. It's in recognizing the truth. Uh, so I just want to, I want to point that out. That, that's coming up over and over and over it, as though there's something that's illusory about the world and that that's what the priests are keeping hidden from us, the keys to unlocking that, that mystery. All right, here's the last quote from the Gospel of Thomas. Jesus said, He who will drink from my mouth will become like me. I myself shall become he, and the things that are hidden will become revealed to him. I'll read that again. He who will drink from my mouth will become like me. I myself shall become he, and the things that are hidden will become revealed to him. So whoever drinks from the mouth of Jesus will become Jesus. It says, I myself shall become he. Then you will become Jesus, and everything will be revealed to you. Remember, Jesus said nothing, nothing that's hidden won't be revealed. There's nothing that won't become manifest. And when you become God, when you become Jesus, all of those things will be revealed to you, including whatever it is that's, that's relieving your fear of death, you know, the, the realization that you are God and cannot die. And there's a passage in John chapter 6 that reads like this, Then Jesus said unto them, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye shall have no life in you. So this is communion, guys. This is, eat, eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. This is the, the ritual of, of the Christian religion. When Jesus says, drink, drink his blood or you'll have no life in you, and the Gospel of Thomas says, he who will drink from my mouth will become like me. I think you're, I think you're, seeing, you're seeing something reminiscent of the communion ceremony in the Bible. So drink, eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. And Thomas, he's saying, drink from my mouth. And I'm not sure what's meant here by drinking from my mouth, but whether it's drinking from my mouth, like his words, like listening and absorbing the, the secret knowledge that's going to give you that enlightenment, or if it's something like the word, you know, from, from the Bible, the logos, you know, the thing that was there in the beginning when God was creating the heavens and the earth, the thing that is embodied in, uh, in, in Jesus, the logos, that's the word. So is that what you're drinking from the mouth of Jesus, the logos, God? And taking it into yourself, you know, whether whether you're doing the communion thing where you're eating the flesh symbolically, drinking the blood, you're you're ingesting and bringing God into your body. Do you understand that's what you're doing symbolically? And the Gospel of Thomas is saying that if you drink from my mouth, that I shall become He, I shall become you. You will become Jesus Christ. And who is Jesus Christ? If you're a Christian, God Himself. So how is it how is it that we have this Christian ritual at the heart of the orthodox religion of communion that we imagine taking into ourselves and incorporating God into our being and becoming holy as a result 
that we do that every Sunday and never once realize that that the earliest Gospels from the words of Jesus are saying that you can become as Jesus. Not, not just that. You can become Jesus and you can become God and you can conquer death. And you get some of that from the biblical Gospels and some of it you don't. And the part you don't get really seems to me to be to hinge on the power that, that omitting those things gives to the church. And I don't mean to be negative about the church, and I don't mean to be negative about congregations and fellowship and all the stuff people like to do. You like religion? Be religious. You want to, you want to be religious with others? Be religious with others. I don't like the idea of submitting to control or, or influence by anybody who has something to gain. And I just wonder if all of the various councils and Constantine himself are not guilty of that. And if the secret knowledge that we're seeing from the Gospel of Thomas that may very well be Q, the original Gospel, or it may very well be the closest thing we're ever going to have to it, the closest we can ever come to the words that actually came out of Jesus' mouth. And fair enough, many of those quotes are verbatim in the Bible. So, you know, that gives some credence to this Gospel of Thomas. So much of it is identical to what you see in the Bible. And what, But what about the stuff that's not? What about the stuff that seems contrary to it, to the Orthodox religion? Is that made up stuff or is it hidden from us? And if it was hidden from us, then we should recover it. We should find out what the Christian religion is really all about. He who will drink from my mouth will become like me. I myself shall become he and the things that are hidden will become revealed to him. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode.